You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. An Oakland County judge upheld Governor Whitmer's injunction against the 1931 abortion ban that went on the books after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, keeping abortion legal in Michigan indefinitely. Attorney David Coleman from the Great Lakes Justice Center represented two county prosecutors who filed suit to strike down the governor's injunction, and he talked to Guy Gordon. Let's start with the breaking news of the day, and it came out uh, around uh, 11.15 this morning, and that is that an Oakland County judge, Jacob Cunningham, ruled that an injunction against enforcing the 1931 law on the books uh, that criminalizes abortion, uh, that it cannot be enforced by the county prosecutors across the state, that may be home to abortion clinics. Uh, This ruling being applauded by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, saying that she's grateful for it, that it will protect women and ensure nurses and doctors can keep caring for their patients without fear of prosecution. Uh, She goes on to say that uh, this fight will go on because she said the sad reality, quote, is that a number of leaders in the state are actively looking for ways to make sure Michigan's draconian 1931 law, which bans abortion for all women, doesn't include exceptions for rape or incest, and criminalizes nurses and doctors, is the law of the land. I am proud of my team. Uh, Dana Nessel, the attorney general that uh, waged this battle in court, says abortion is critical health care. Quote, uncertainty around the law has a chilling effect on the conduct of doctors and therefore limits access to care for Michigan women. So you've heard from that side. Let's talk to the man who represented the two county prosecutors who felt uh, that it was inappropriate, that their hands be tied, that they should have the ability to enforce a law that's been on the books for 90 years. David Coleman is an attorney at Coleman Legal Group, and he's the senior legal counsel with the Great Lakes Justice Center. David, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be with you again. Uh, first of all, just uh, your reaction to the ruling? Well, obviously, it's a disappointing ruling, but I can't say that it's unexpected. <laughs> I think, you know, given the way the hearing went the past few days and the earlier rulings of the court, uh, I, I'm not surprised. Uh, I will say that I think this is a sad day for the rule of law in Michigan. Um, the judge failed to address any of the major legal problems with this lawsuit that we brought up and just ruled on policy issues. Um, you know, this judge is not a legislator. He's not the executive. He's supposed to be a judge to call balls and strikes in a fair and impartial manner on, you know, things involving the law. And as we've said all along here, there is no law for the governor to sue over right now because the law in Michigan is there is no right to an abortion under Michigan's Constitution, period. That's the status of the law. And this judge now has issued a preliminary injunction saying, well, okay, there may not, you know, essentially I don't care, you know, that that the law doesn't exist, but I'm still going to issue an injunction anyway because I think women will be harmed. Well, remember, women can't be prosecuted under this statute. This is a statute that deals with doctors and abortion providers. And so, you know, we raise jurisdictional issues, other legal issues. You know, for example, how does the governor represent doctors in abortion clinics? She sued in her capacity as governor for the state of Michigan, not for all people in the state of Michigan privately or individually. I, I have never seen in all my years, I've never heard of this happening where the governor sues on behalf of private individuals in a civil lawsuit to try to reach some legal conclusion or result the governor wants. That's never happened in our Michigan's history before. So yeah, the this judge, was a... 
Go ahead. The judge seemed to be saying, though, that when it comes to harm, defining who is harmed by this action, he said the harm mm-hmm. to the body of women and people capable of pregnancy uh, in not issuing this injunction could not be more real, clear, present, and dangerous to the court. And he says he saw no harm to a county prosecutor, basically asking mm-hmm. where's the harm. Your response to that? Yeah. Well, as I said uh, throughout the hearings the last couple of days, there is severe harm to these prosecutors. They have constitutional duties and obligations to follow through and comply with the law, and they're being prevented from doing it. Case law is clear. A constitutional violation is irreparable harm. Our clients are being harmed. Our clients are being harmed because the separation of powers doctrine is being violated here. Our clients are being harmed. I, I went through a whole litany. I won't do it all right now. But the other thing is, is that, again, this is very specific. Take abortion out of this guy. Okay, when you come to court and you file a lawsuit and you ask for a preliminary injunction, the only person that can get a preliminary injunction is the party asking for it, which is the governor. I don't see any doctors as parties in this case. I don't see abortion providers. I don't see pregnant women. They're not parties in this case. It's it's illegal for the judge to issue a preliminary injunction, in our opinion, based on people who are not parties to the case. This is basic black letter law. And so, you know, we're going to appeal this. We're going to go to the Court of Appeals and we'll see what they say about it. And we'll go from there. I mean, I understand. Well, well you could make the argument. Where's issue. the harm to the where's the harm to the doctors when this law hasn't been exercised yet? No one's been charged. No one's been investigated. That's right. Nobody's been charged. And I should also point out, this does not bind all prosecutors in Michigan, this order today. It's only binding on the 13 prosecutors who are defendants in this case. There are 70 prosecutors in Michigan who can still enforce the law if they choose to do so. Yeah. David, one of the things that the judge said, it sounded to me like he really didn't want this case at all because he kept bringing up the ballot referendum that's being debated right now that may be on the November ballot, Mm -hmm. the so-called reproductive rights uh, constitutional amendment. He said the ultimate expression of political power in this country comes not from the branches of our government and those that serve as public officials in them, but from the people. It sounds like he didn't even want the case. And I guess my question to you, we know that this can be batted back and forth. You could go to a different judge, and you wouldn't necessarily have certainty. Isn't, is is mm-hmm. the courtroom the best forum for this, or should it be decided? You've been no. arguing these cases for years. Should it be decided at the ballot yeah. box or legislatively? That you know, Guy, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what we were arguing this week and a couple of weeks ago, is that it is coming up on the ballot. It is going to be voted on by the people unless something happens, you know, where it doesn't get on the ballot, but it looks like it's going to. And so that's the proper way to change laws is through the ballot box where everybody can vote and everybody can weigh in and or through the legislature. And, you know, listen, for it kind of, you know, they say, well, all these doctors and all these abortion providers and women, they have to have a voice, the AG said yesterday. Judge, mm-hmm. you need to hear their voice. Well, you know what? I think other voices need to be heard, like the 30,000 babies who will be killed this year in Michigan through abortion. I think voices of all the people, like we were just talking about, at the ballot box, everybody should have the right to weigh in on this issue, not just one person bringing a lawsuit that's a fake sham political lawsuit. That's not the way our system works. This is an abuse of power, and this is going to open the floodgates for governors for years to come 
to now be able to change laws they don't like. So imagine a Republican governor getting in and saying, hey, I don't like these environmental laws that are on the books in this area, or I don't like this, these gun laws. And they sue prosecutors, say, oh, you can't prosecute anybody for these crimes anymore. What's to stop them from doing it? Yeah. This has never been done before, guy. Take abortion so go out of the here, issue. David? This is wrong. Where do you go from this here? This is just flat this... out wrong. Do we you go, go to the Court, the Court of, Appeals. of Appeals? Okay. Right. And this is like a couple of weeks ago, remember, with the Gleisher order and everybody on the other side. Oh, all prosecutors are bound. You guys can't prosecute any cases. And we said, well, that's nice. That's your opinion. But I don't think you're right. We went to the Court of Appeals and we won. And all, lo and behold, Judge Gleisher's order did not bind all the prosecutors in Michigan. Well, okay, we got a trial judge who's refusing to follow the law. He won't follow precedent. And a governor who wants to create new law out of nothing. Okay, well, they've made their ruling. Now I guess we'll see what the Court of Appeals is going to say about it. But all of that aside, Guy, you are absolutely right. Come November, if the people vote, and they voted in, I might not like it, but that would be the law. But you know what? The people could vote it down, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's the appropriate place. One thing, we need clarity and certainty. After after 50 years of this, we need clarity and certainty. Republican gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon announced Shan Hernandez, a former Port Huron state rep, as her pick for lieutenant governor Friday afternoon. State Representative Mark Tisdell, running himself in the 55th District, served in the state legislature with Hernandez, and he reacts to the news on The Guy Gordon Show. I, I just I just talked to a leading Republican. In case you just got the breaking news, Shane Hernandez, the former state rep uh, from Macomb County, is going to be the running mate of Tudor's Dixon, provided uh, that that gets the endorsement of the party faithful at their August 27th state convention. Um, Shane Hernandez, uh, this leading Republican, says is a safe choice, but doesn't move the needle in southeast Michigan. Um, you know, I, 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 I got to tell you, he checks some of the important boxes. Uh, first and foremost, he, he, he's got geographical balance for the certificate, which is nice. He is a fiscal conservative and, and served as well as the House Appropriations Chairman. And... Uh, he also has got legislative experience, which in the in the lieutenant governor's role can is important, especially when you've got a first time candidate in Tudor Dixon, someone with when with limited uh, political experience. So he checks a lot of the boxes. We'll see how the rest of the party faithful greets him. And uh, I wanted to ask our, our guest. This is not why we invited him on, but we stumbled into breaking news together, and that's Mark Tisdale. The state representative uh, from Rochester Hills, a Republican in the 45th District. Uh, representative Tisdall, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Good to be on again. Uh, so what do you think of the selection of Shane Hernandez as uh, Tudor Dixon's running mate? Uh, well, it, it, quite honestly, it took me by surprise. But it, but as I stop and think about it, it answers a couple of questions. You know, as you indicated, Shane has experience in the in the House of Representatives. He was two years as the appropriations chair, as you said, and so that got him into you know in, into the budget negotiations uh, with with both uh, feet and up to his eyeballs. Uh, he, he also served uh, as the speaker's uh, strategic advisor, and then most recently as uh, chair of the caucus. Uh, member services, communications, uh, uh, you know, public re- public relations advice, that kind of thing. 
and then recently, just as we're going into the campaign season, stepped down. So my guess is maybe this is a conversation that's been going on between um, uh, 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 our, our nominee uh, uh, Dixon and uh, and. Mm-hmm. and Dane Hernandez for some time, but like you said, he's a he's a fiscal conservative. He started out, he got his grassroots uh, upbringing and you know his political upbringing in in grassroots Republican organizations. Uh, he's a he's a licensed, I believe he's a licensed architect, um, and so that that gives him yeah. some insight into you know some civic uh, engineering issues uh, and so with this need of infrastructure that the state has and upgrading and and the, the 4.7 billion we received in infrastructure federal funding on top of this year's six billion dollar transportation budget uh you know you put all those things together i think it, it really starts to look like a wise choice regardless of what yeah. part of the state is from well and I found him to be a very reasonable guy. He was no shrinking violet on issues of fiscal responsibility and tax hikes, but he also showed himself to be a shrewd negotiator and a fair negotiator when it came to the budget. And those are all skills that, uh, heaven knows, sometimes seem to be in short supply these days. The pro-life group Citizens to Support Michigan Women and Children filed a challenge in court Thursday alleging the state's abortion ballot initiative has over 60 typos in its wording, which could lead to confusion at the ballot box. Kristen Polo is the group's spokeswoman, and she went on both All Talk and The Guy Gordon Show. Well, this could be a pretty big legal deal, a legal blockade against the abortion referendum on the ballot this November. It's breaking news this morning. You know, it's funny, Kevin, because we were just talking yesterday about the importance of clarity when accurately describing a referendum or any decision that's left up to voters and how often we are being misled about some core issues. In this case, namely, the abortion referendum on the November ballot, how signature gatherers were essentially lying about it in order to get people to sign this to get it on the ballot. Well, now apparently um, we're learning there are dozens of mistakes on that referendum in the verbiage itself on the actual document. And that's the claim coming down this morning from citizens supporting Michigan women and children. That's the group opposing the amendment. And if it's true, Kevin, it could mean that this referendum cannot be on the November ballot. Yeah, Tom, we talk about the need for transparency for proposals we vote on to be crystal clear so that the voter knows exactly what they're voting for. Instead, we get these vague or sometimes misleading language. It's disgraceful, really. Well, now, in this case, we have these run-on sentences, multiple words pushed together to the point you can't make out what was supposed to be said without literally getting a pen out and trying to decipher it like some sort of word game. If people are trying to read this proposal for the first time on Election Day, it will be extremely difficult for them. But is that enough to knock this abortion ballot initiative off the ballot? Joining us now is Kristen Polo, spokeswoman for the Citizens to Support Michigan Women and Children Coalition. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, We appreciate you being here for sure. Can you explain uh, to our audience what has happened here and, and why you think it's important enough to pull this off the ballot? Absolutely. So before a proposal is approved to be put on a ballot, a sample of signatures is pulled and shared for inspection by the Bureau of Elections. And during inspection of the signatures last week, our legal team found 43 
serious mistakes in the language. We inspected all 515 sheets in the petition sample, and they all have these 43 mistakes, mistakes that weren't in the petition that was filed with the Board of Canvassers for approval. And, you know, this amendment has been a disaster from day one, and as we get closer to Election Day, it only gets worse. Now here we have this language, which was already confusing and misleading, and now it's riddled with mistakes. It's unacceptable to be this sloppy with our foundational document, the Constitution. Yeah. How, how many people do you suspect read the proposals for the first time on Election Day while they are in the voting booth? And, and are these mistakes enough, in your opinion, to confuse voters? Many people read it for the first time when they have their ballot in front of them. And I think regardless, before these mistakes were even found, voters were finding this incredibly confusing and misleading. And now it's only worse. So let's be clear about this. So because you can you can look at the text of the language online, you can you can seek it out. And you said what was filed did not have these mistakes. So the mistakes occurred on the actual uh, proposals that carried the required signatures. Is, is that what you're saying? That's right. So, you know, it's shocking that more than three quarters of a million voters, including the governor and the state attorney general, signed a petition that is impossible to understand. I mean, some of the words that were created by this mistake are 107 characters long. Another is 108 characters long. It's total incomprehensible gibberish. These aren't words that are defined in the English language, and yet they're asking us to put this in the state constitution forever. So you're going to challenge this. You're going to file this week. Do you think the Board of State Canvassers will look at this verbiage that was on the actual petitions itself? Do you think they'll look at it and they'll consider this and you might have a victory here? I think they will absolutely consider it. Other proposals have been thrown out for far less than this. Um, so we will be filing a challenge with the Board of Canvassers, and we expect them to do the right thing and reject this confusing mess. So people understand what we're talking about, uh, like decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy. That's all one word on this. Uh, another one, including but not limited to prenatal care, all one word, all the letters pushed together. You can make some of them out, uh, you know, with not too much trouble. Others, actually, honestly, there's a couple I still haven't figured out here. Um, it, it's definitely a mistake, but is it is it the kind of mistake that gets it kicked off the ballot? Because we talked about the mistakes before that got Republican uh, candidates for governor kicked off, and if that was fair or not. Is it the responsibility of the people who put out these, these signature uh, initiatives to get it right? It is absolutely their responsibility to get it right. And I think it's shocking that they apparently didn't even proofread their own amendment. But as I said, other proposals have been thrown out for less. It is a very serious ask to ask voters to put 43 mistakes into our state constitution permanently. This is a founding document and making changes to it is serious business. So yeah, I think it actually is a big deal. Constitutional amendments aren't about grand themes or big ideas. They are about words, words that have very specific meaning that have been carefully chosen and carry legal weight. But in this case, half of the amendment is gibberish because 43 spaces are missing. And now we have 
all kinds of incomprehensible words that aren't defined in the English language. It sounds like somebody caught it, but likely after all the signatures were gathered because what they filed corrected these mistakes. But again, that was after they gathered the signatures. Let's say the Board of Canvassers doesn't agree with this. You have serious concerns uh, aside from this uh, about the amendment itself, uh, and you claim that this would allow for late-term abortions and perhaps even infanticide. Why do you believe that? Well, the amendment text makes it very clear that this repeals every restriction and regulation on abortion in our state. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go read the amendment text and see it for yourself. But in addition to that, it also repeals parental consent for minors seeking abortion. And that's something that every person should be concerned about. Parents have a right to know what's happening in their child's life to protect them. It also repeals health and safety standards that protect women. It would allow non-doctors to perform abortions. Could you uh, make an appeal to the Board of State Canvassers to kick uh, an initiative like this off the ballot just because it was extremely vague or misleading? Well, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know about that, but we will be filing a challenge due to these 43 mistakes that were found in the language. We'll be filing a challenge with the Board of Canvassers, and we expect them to do the right thing and reject this confusing mess. Part of the confusion stems from certain comments. So those supporting this uh, amendment to the Constitution in the state of Michigan allowing abortion, they have come out and said very publicly that this only returns the rights of abortion back to how it was under Roe v. Wade, which the Supreme Court, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned. You disagree with that, don't you? Absolutely. Right in the amendment text, it makes it clear that this repeals all regulations and restrictions on abortion. So the fact that they're saying this just maintains the status quo is absolutely not true. This is one of the most extreme amendments, extreme pieces of policy on abortion that's been put forth in any state ever. Well, uh, we, we, I know you're going to file this this week. I hope you let us know what have transpires. We'll be following it as well to see how the Board of State Canvassers responds to this. But uh, clearly there are a lot of mistakes on the petition gathering. Uh, the petition itself and the language that seems to have been corrected prior to being filed but was not there at the time of the signatures. We appreciate your time on this very much. Kristen Polo, the spokeswoman for the Citizens to Support Michigan Women and Children. Kristen, thank you. Thank you. There is a lot of uh, legal clouds and smoke out there because uh, we've got a law from 1931 saying abortion is illegal. But right now it's being held up uh, because of a preliminary injunction uh, that was sought by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, That injunction uh, called up today a hearing to determine whether or not it should be extended and continued. WJR senior news analyst Chris Renwick following that court proceeding uh, that will determine whether or not prosecutors can enforce it. Chris? Good afternoon, Guy. Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Jacob Cunningham kicked off today's hearing by signing an order to keep the temporary restraining order blocking enforcement of Michigan's abortion ban in, as he put it, full force and effect until he decides on the broader request for a preliminary injunction sought by Governor Gretchen Whitmer on behalf of the state. Now, if Cunningham doles out the injunction, county prosecutors would not be able to enforce the state's 1931 abortion ban law as the courts consider a lawsuit brought on by Governor Gretchen Whitmer seeking to overturn 
the abortion ban as an unconstitutional law. Lawyers representing the Whitmer side of the case say the preliminary injunction blocking the county prosecutors from enforcing the law would strip away equal protection, the balance of harm and bodily protection from women who were pregnant and seeking an abortion. Meanwhile, attorney David Coleman, who's representing two county prosecutors, subpoenaed Whitmer for today's hearing on the argument that she should have to explain how she would be expressly harmed by the state's abortion ban. Now, in his opening statement, Coleman argued the right to an abortion has always been derived solely from the federal constitution here in Michigan. Well, we know how that turned out with the overturn of Roe versus Wade to the states. And that has never been based on the state constitution, uh, as Coleman points to case precedent. He also argued that's why the injunction should not be awarded. Uh, Michigan's chief medical executive, Dr. Natasha Bagdasarian, took the stand, basically serving as the state's representative instead of the governor. Uh, she claimed black moms uh, particularly would experience worse health, com- worse health outcomes, including uh, infant maternal mortality rates would go up more so than white women who became pregnant if the law were to be enforced. Now, we also heard from a, a, a couple of other notable names today. We heard from Washtenaw County Prosecutor Ellie Savitt. We heard from Karen McDonald, the prosecutor in Oakland County. Uh, and, and the the big news, though, Guy, uh, today, as this will certainly bleed over into another hearing uh, as uh, uh, more people are called to the stand, um, it, the 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 news today was that that restra- that that restraining order essentially on that mm-hmm. 1931 law to allow the prosecutors to enforce it has been extended until he hears the the totality of this case. Yeah, pending conclusion of all this testimony. Correct. And uh, what are they back at it tomorrow at nine thirty? Yep. All right, and we'll be on the case. Chris, thanks so much. While we await a definitive court resolution on this, if there is to be one, a ballot referendum calling itself the Reproductive Freedom for All Initiative is awaiting approval of petitions that will put this abortion question before you and other voters on the ballot in November. Uh, And in advance of that, there are opponents suggesting that those petitions themselves were deeply flawed, riddled with errors. Kristen Polo is the spokesperson for Citizens Supporting Michigan Women and Children, and she joins us this afternoon with those concerns. Hi, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me. I I know the deadline for complaints, I believe, is is tomorrow, Thursday. Have you uh, formally filed one at this point? I haven't heard an update in the last couple hours, but we do plan to file a challenge. Yeah. Okay. Can you kind of give us the, uh, the, the thumbnail sketch of what that challenge will allege? Absolutely. So during an inspection of the signatures last week, our legal team found 43 serious mistakes in the language of the amendment. And it would be unprecedented for a proposal with this many errors to make the ballot. So why raise this now? And why weren't they caught in the in the petition when the petition language was originally submitted? That's a great question. Um Unfortunately for them, (laughs) this uh, mistake was not in the approved amendment. Back on March 23rd, they submitted the language and the Board of Canvassers said that they would give conditional approval of that language if the word the was removed from a certain sentence where it wasn't supposed to be. And so they said they'd take the word the out and print the rest as is. Unfortunately, something happened in between, and what made it out into the field on 
seemingly every petition are these 43 serious mistakes. Uh, we pulled a sample of 515 petitions, and these mistakes were on every single one. You know, amending the state constitution is serious business. Sure. And it is not appropriate to put any mistakes in our state constitution, let alone 43. Precision matters, clarity matters, uh, the details matter. So when we're talking about these 43 errors, I mean, that could be anything. Are we talking about run-of-the-mill typos, which maybe don't change the the essence of the idea being put forth that people, when they read them, can self-correct or auto-correct? Or are they really egregious uh, textual matters that would change the, the the ability to understand it. Well, you know, it's interesting because essentially what's happened through these 43 mistakes, there are spaces missing between a bunch of the words. So some of the words in this are 107, 108 characters long. And the fact is that words are not if if a word is not a word it's a real problem right like how would that play out in the courts if we're putting things that are not english words into our state constitution forever we didn't come up with the need for precision the state of michigan did and proposals with far less mistakes have been thrown out in the past so we're calling on the board of canvassers to do the right thing and say that this is too gibberish ridden to be put on the ballot before voters so, I mean, we, I had one of these petitions um, thrown at me, and they were quite clear that this was to enshrine reproductive rights into the Michigan Constitution. Um, the stuff that I read was, was pretty clear because I had a lot of curiosity as how they were going to handle the fetal viability part of this. And, and honestly, the, the, the one that was thrown at me didn't have that on it. Um, but when you look at these run-on sentences, are they so egregious that the average person that these textual mistakes would lead the average voter to truly misunderstand, which was kind of the basic thrust of the measure, that it's about permitting abortion? Well, you know, that that is what will be the decision before the Board of Canvassers. From our perspective, it's incomprehensible. It's gibberish. When I put my own eyes on it, I had a hard time making out what it was. I mean, one of the words is, like I said, 108 characters long. Um, these aren't words that are defined in the English language. And mending the Constitution is very important. Constitutional amendments aren't about grand themes or big ideas. They're about words, words that are carefully chosen, that have very specific meanings. But in this case, half of this amendment is made up now of things that aren't words. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking, I'm looking at some of the one of the run on sentences, decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy all run together, Uh, including but not limited to miscarriage, all run together. You've got to work to separate those words out, and it makes understanding it certainly more of a chore. Um, What is the the timeline here very quickly, Kristen? Uh, Are the canvassers meeting this Friday? I I saw that one was scheduled, but then I've also seen that this is going to come up August 31st. So what's the timeline? I'm not sure at this point. I I thought there was a meeting this week and then on August 31st as well. I know that we're filing our challenge this week and calling on them to do the right thing and Mm -hmm. throw this out. Again, it would be unprecedented for a proposal with this many errors to appear on the ballot. 
We will await the canvasser's decision. In the meantime, uh, Reproductive Freedom for All initiative of spokesperson Darcy McConnell says, quote, hundreds of thousands of Michiganders have spoken. More than 730,000 registered voters, a record number, read, understood, and signed the petition in support of reproductive freedom. They're saying they're confident they'll prevail uh, when this gets to the canvassers. And we'll await that decision, and we thank you for explaining it to us. Thank you for having me. Republican Christina Caramo, a professor at the Wayne County Community College District, will face off against Democrat incumbent Jocelyn Benson for Secretary of State. Caramo appeared on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz on Monday. It's so frustrating, Tom. You go in to vote and you read a proposal and the language is vague. Uh, Sometimes it's intentionally misleading. You don't even really know what you're voting on. Voters should not have to work that hard to figure out what they're voting for or against. The wording should be crystal clear on what you're voting for. And in November, our next guest says you better be careful to study up in advance of going to the polls or you may accidentally vote for something you disagree with. Joining us now is Christina Caramo. Sorry about that. Christina Caramo, Republican nominee for Secretary of State. Uh, Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate you being here. Uh, You you call the wording a a ruse to deceive voters. Tell, Tell us what's happening here. You know, it's important to understand that our voting rights are inextricably linked to our liberty. And there are three elements to our voting rights, ballot access, ballot integrity, and preventing illegal ballots from being injected into the system. The Promote the Vote initiative is an absolute assault on our voting rights, namely the last two elements. And also I want to point out, even though they collect a lot of signatures for this petition, they use deceptive tactics to gain the signatures in the first place. They approach the average person while at the Secretary of State's office, and they'll say something like, do you want to expand voting rights? For the average Michigander, that sounds great, but that sounds great for those who don't fully understand the three elements of our voting rights, and these people don't explain that to people. They just say, hey, you want to support voting rights? Folks say, great. They sign the petition, keep walking, not knowing that they're actually putting a nail in the coffin of any type of integrity in our election system. Also, when you talk about the nine days of early in-person voting, not only will that put uh, municipalities in such a precarious situation. It will drive up the cost of our elections. That burden will go on the municipality, which they turn around and want to raise your property taxes. Additionally, it's not secure. I've talked to multiple local clerks who are afraid of speaking up because they're afraid of Jocelyn Benson. They are absolutely up in arms about this initiative because running the elections will be so complicated and it will be very, very difficult to secure the process. They want to have where you can have one in-person voting location with multiple municipalities. Bribery is what they're bringing into our election system. In order for for people to be able to privately fund elections, you're opening the door for massive amounts of bribery. Additionally, taxpayer paid postage for absentee ballots, permanent drop boxes. The drop boxes are not secure. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but they don't tell the public fully what they plan to do. So whenever someone conceals to you the, the extent of what they want to accomplish, they necessarily have bad intentions. Otherwise, they will be more upfront with the public of what they're asking them to vote for. This never would have gone before the voters if they didn't get enough signatures. Let's start there. Is there anything that can be done about the deceptiveness of signature gathering, because this happened with multiple proposals. Uh, People uh, come up to you when you're walking out of a store or out of a building, and they'll they'll say anything to get you to sign. Is, Is there anything that can be done about this? You know, I think it's incumbent upon the public to be more discerning. You know, as much as we complain about a lot of these politicians and bureaucrats who are shady and do all these illegal and corrupt things and some things that are legal but just morally wrong, it's the public's fault in many regards for not paying attention to what our elected officials are doing. Too often, 
you know, we're bogged down with our everyday life, but we have to take time to be politically engaged. And it is incumbent upon us when someone says, hey, do you want to sign this petition? The bill is on the petition that you're physically signing. So you can stop and read the bill. So people in the public need to stop and actually read the things before they just sign it. But we just kind of have this idea that, oh, this person is saying this buzz phrase and I just sign it. The public has got to be more discerning. Otherwise, it's going to destroy our republic. But the things they're, they're asking for, removing voter ID, I mean, this is ludicrous. And, you know, I've heard these nonsensical arguments that, you know, it's a poll tax to expect the voter ID. Let's, let's be clear. Our legislature passed a bill to provide free vote for free ID for individuals who are that destitute to where they couldn't afford it. And Gretchen Whitmer vetoed it. So these people yeah. really don't care about folks having ID because let's remember something. Number one, if you have a large swab of the population without an ID, that means the secretary of state is failing at her job and needs to be booted out of office because it's her job to make sure people have an ID. Number two, you need an ID more than just voting. You need it for so many areas of your life. So to prevent People from pre- prevent, you know, not even just requiring the ID, but removing the provisional ballot process that allows a local clerk to affirm this person's affidavit is nothing more than an absolute assault on our voting rights. And the people of Michigan need to vote this down. So the, the American Civil Liberties Union regarding voter IDs, they say voter ID laws deprive many voters of their right to vote. And they say primarily minority communities, African-American communities. You're African-American. Have you seen any uh, incidents where voters have been deprived of their rights to vote because of an ID? The the premise of their claim is racism in itself. A lot of these... Pretend, these people who pretend to be liberal do-gooders are really racist. They engage in the racism of low expectations. They consistently act as though black and brown people are too stupid to be engaging and meaningful members of society. Like black and brown people are just too dumb and too stupid and lack the comprehension to get by and make it in life. As you mentioned, I am an African-American woman, and I don't know a single person who is opposed to a voting ID. When the polls show what African-Americans overwhelmingly believe, overwhelmingly black and brown Americans support voter ID because it's common sense. So groups like the ACLU and Jocelyn Benson and all these people like to pretend they care so much about black people, but they could absolutely care less about black people because they're attempting to assault the voting rights of all Americans, which necessarily include black people. And as I mentioned before, people need IDs to do more than just vote. You need IDs to get a bank account, to enter federal buildings, to fly, all these things. So they only care about black people in that regard. If that's the case, what is Jocelyn Benson doing to ensure people have an ID? Clearly, she's failing at her job. Mm. But let's be real here. These people are just making up these claims to attack our voting rights, to make voting fraud easy. Our elections are the only way that we, the people, maintain control over our government. This is why it's been such a number one issue in this election. We can write our elected officials. We can stamp our feet and wring our hands. But at the end of the day, if our voting rights are not protected, which means ballot access, ballot security, and preventing illegal ballots from being injected into the system, we, the people, have no control over our government. Michigan has a law right now. Uh, it's talk about the drop boxes. This law that is on the books, it greatly restricts who, other than the voter, can have custody of someone's ballot. Ballot harvesting is illegal. Uh, this mm-hmm. proposal, uh, promote the vote, would mandate drop boxes with 24-hour access. Are you concerned about someone dropping off someone else's ballot? There is a video. So last week, we actually had a press conference regarding Promote the Vote, and we had surveillance footage of in Detroit, this woman approaches a drop box 
She realizes that the multiple ballots she has in her hand are not signed. She proceeds to go and sit in her vehicle and sign ballot after ballot after ballot after ballot after ballot. This is massive voter fraud. Let's point this out. It's Jocelyn Benson's job to criminally investigate this, and she has not. It's also Dana Nessel's job to investigate this. She has not. Instead, Dana Nessel has turned around and claimed that I'm engaging in a felony and it could be criminally charged for spreading disinformation. So she's trying to violate my freedom of speech and my right to petition my government for a redress of grievances. We have a criminal group running our state in the, in the executive branch. These three women need to go. And so instead of investigating election fraud, which is on camera, so this is not up for debate. This is on film. And you think they're going to do anything about it? Absolutely not. Instead, they're going to attack your voting rights, like pretending they're your friend. You think about it. If I want to destroy you, of course I have to pretend I'm your friend because you won't get close enough for me to let me do it. And that's exactly what they're doing to our voting rights. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to look at that video, too. We'll try to figure that out because she did say, Jocelyn Benson told us that she would investigate, along with Dana Nessel, anything of that nature. There was evidence of voter fraud. We appreciate your perspective on this. Christina Caramo, Republican nominee for Secretary of State. Great to speak with you again. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on, and I'll be sure to retweet that video on my Twitter, Christina Caramo, at Christina Caramo on Twitter, so everyone can see the video I'm referring to. Democrat Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, running in the 6th District, went on all talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz on Monday to discuss the House voting on the Infrastructure Reduction Act. Is this bill perfect? No. But is it going to make a difference? Yes. And there is a lot of hyperbole about what is in, in, what is in there a lot of, I mean, let's just take the taxes. The fact of the matter is, is that, that this bill is going to reduce the budget deficit and the Committee for Fiscal Responsibility is praising this bill because it's really the first meaningful act of legislation that will reduce the budget deficit, so it will take several years. It is not going to increase taxes, and just the Committee on Taxation and others have said on any family, anyone making less than $400,000 a year. It increases taxes on corporations that aren't paying their fair share and on billionaires that should pay their fair share. So, you know, when we had tax cuts several years ago, a lot of working men and women found an increase in their taxes while corporations were using loopholes in that bill to locate overseas. And we're using it to incentivize that and weren't paying their fair share. I think that there are two very important things in this, or it's not just two, there's a mountain of different things in here uh, that this does. I mean, first of all, it is going to take a significant step in trying to lower the cost of prescription medicine for Americans. It's going to allow Medicare to negotiate the price of uh, the most popular drugs that a lot of people use. The first place people are going to see it is in insulin, where it will cap the cost of insulin to $35 a month. But I'll tell you something, in the United States Senate, the provision that was in there would have capped it for all insulin users, those that have private insurance, as well as those that are on Medicare and Medicaid. Senate stripped that out. So that's not there. So it's only there for Medicare and Medicaid providers. That's or you know that are that are using that that's something that's really important because the cost of insulin has gone sky high and i can't tell you how many families i talk to it's going to look at taking some of these commonly used drugs that you know some of the biggest problems people have as they age are cardiac problems blood pressure problems 
they're going to try to negotiate rates that are going to stop these escalating costs all the time. I think that matters. And two, while everybody screamed about the Affordable Care Act and said it was the worst thing since sliced bread and was going to uh, uh, destroy the health care system, a lot more people have gotten health insurance, have been able to buy that insurance, and this bill ensured that when they go to the market in September that they will be, continue to have affordable prices to be able to get it. I thought that was very important. I, I'm not yeah, no, go ahead. I that's, could a, talk I, about that. that's okay. I, I'm thinking about, you know, working families, say a family of four, both parents are out working, maybe they, they have a combined income of 80 to 125 grand a year. Are, are IRS agents going to come after and audit them? Are corporations no. going to pass down these taxes on them? Or are these hardworking families going to end up suffering more from this financially or will they benefit more? It's not our scare tactics. The fact of the matter is the IRS is way underfunded. I can't tell you how much casework I've had in the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic, of people that can't even get their tax returns, the money refunded that they are owed. Uh, you know, there's been article after article about how IRS doesn't have enough people working for them. And what they're doing is putting more money in there so that they will go after the billionaires that aren't paying their fair share and go after the corporations. They're trying to bring in those big dollars so we can get that money into the budget. There were even an article in the Wall Street Journal showing how bad the IRS cafeteria looked and how underfunded Treasury is. So there is a need for that. But it it is not going to be working men and women, uh, especially what you just talked about, people making $80,000, $90,000 that are going to be up to this. Well, days. So there, there's obviously a difference of opinion on that particular issue. I think a lot of people want the. the I have no issue, and I don't think a lot of people do with the the Medicare negotiating fair drug prices. I think that's something that most people would agree with. I think the IRS agents, the eighty seven thousand additional agents does give people a lot of reason to have some concern because we know that people making, I think it's under $200,000 a year, have a five times more likelihood of being audited by the IRS. So you're saying that these additional agents will not be used to audit people making less than $400,000 a year. That is not who they're being hired to target. And by the way, how many people listening to us this morning are still having a problem? I mean, I just on Friday dealt with this one myself of somebody who hadn't been able to get the IRS to take their money from last year and she couldn't file her taxes this year. IRS has had a real shortage of workers. It's taking people nine to ten months to even get people to return their calls. They don't have enough people. That's not right. Um, so about the, I want to go back to the the Medicare issue. So um, negotiating drug prices and whatnot for Medicare, d- does that also, how does that impact the patient? Do they also get a reduction in the cost of insulin or is it just uh, what the government has to pay? Uh, they get to no- negotiate what they pay to get the insulin for the patients. This reduction would be for what the patient has to pay for the cost of insulin. So it would cap a patient's cost to $35 a month. Okay. And, you know, for Michigan, we need to not ignore the energy and environmental side of this. Uh, There's a lot of good things in here that's really going to help the industry. That's going to bring jobs back home. It's going to build up the 
resiliency of our supply chain. It's going to, you know, some people think we should go to electric cars. There are those that still think that we shouldn't. That's a matter is, guys. Here's the reality. Transportation is the single biggest contributor to carbon emissions in the world. That's a reality. And any of us who are living in this country and have seen the floods, the hurricanes, the wildfires, the intense heat cannot deny that it's real. And, and this is going to help in the transition. It's got a lot of different things in there that will help not only the OEMs, but will help the supplier community. And I'll tell you something, I am not going to cede our leadership to China or to India or to any other country in the world. We are the, we are the state, we are the city that put the world on wheels. And we're going to stay at the forefront of this. And this bill is going to help us do it. We hope so. We hope you're correct. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell joining us. We appreciate your time, Congresswoman. Thank you. They'll do it for this week's Potsui Election Guide. Keep it tuned to News Talk 760 WJR and TheGreatVoice.com. See you next time.